0: All right, well Good morning everybody. Welcome to our Sunday worship again. My name is Thomas. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. And glad that you're all here today. I'm glad we all survived the hurricane from last week. So kudos to us. And a little bit worried about the video recording, you're going to notice how often I repeat the same shirts every Sunday. So hopefully you could be gracious to our staff and how unfashionable sometimes we can be. It's mainly me. Uh, but again, this is your first time here. We're glad you are, you could join us. It's a great Sunday to join us. We're beginning a, a new series and we're going to be talking about a lot of things uh, for the upcoming church year. Uh, usually in the summer, it's kind of low-key. That's why you see one guitarist. It's uh, Our volunteers take a break. But Next week and especially the month of September, church is going to kind of revive a little bit and a lot of things will be kicking off. And one big thing that we're going to be kicking off is the topic that we're going to talk about today. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Or if you have your programs, it's also there as well. And we're not going to be necessarily camping in this passage. This is more a passage that's representing a lot of passages that we'll be going through today. But as we read this passage, can we all rise together? And here at our church, we believe that when we read the scripture We have a God who's alive and speaks to us. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, starting in verse 1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he, referring to Jesus, gave them authority over unclean spirits to dry them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Aphaeus and Thaddaeus; Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who has also betrayed him. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. And Lord, as we come together, as your church, would your spirit move and stir in our hearts and speak to us, O Lord, in the parts that you need to speak. And so we ask and pray that we could hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Anybody in this room ever read or familiar with the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? Anybody? A few people, one, all right. So for the rest of you, if you ever read that book, this, the book is very interesting, New York Times, number one bestseller for 11 weeks in a row, back in the early 2000s, I believe. And the book actually opens with a mystery. It's a nonfiction book, and yet there's a mystery. The mystery describes this small, obscure town in Italy called Rosetto. Uh, it's, there's a picture up here, if you can see it. Uh, next picture, next slide. Is a the picture there? There's a town. Ah, right there. This is the city of Roseto. It's in Italy. So all of you who are going to Italy, if you're traveling there, this is a town to maybe check out. And what makes this small, obscure town interesting is that back in the 1950s, the number one cause of death for men under the age of 65 were heart attacks. Heart disease was just a normal thing back in the 1950s. This is before breathing exercises and checking to make sure that your health is right and that you're able to just have mental like, healthiness and so forth. Heart attacks were just a normal thing for men under the age of 65. Except in this town. Nobody died of a heart attack in the city of Roseto. And so what happened was this fascinated medical researchers, and so one person actually visited this town, and not only did he discover that nobody died of a heart attack in this town, he also discovered that nobody had even heart diseases. In fact, nobody committed suicide in this town. Nobody struggled with drugs in this town. The only way people died in this town was through old age, natural causes. So what was going on here? Why were people so healthy in this small town? Why did this small town avoid the typical health problems that the rest of the world experienced? And so they had a couple of theories. They thought maybe it's their diet. Maybe based on what they eat, they were able to become healthy. So they looked into that and they discovered that this town, they ate pizza, they ate bacon, they ate sweets. So it clearly was not their diet that was making them healthy. Was it exercise? They looked around, nobody seemed to exercise. No gyms, no yoga classes. Nothing. Was it genetics? Maybe there's something about this town where they're all from the same family lineage, and because of that, their genetic code just made them like not really like have heart diseases and so forth. But what's really fascinating is they discovered all the people in this town. For the few folks who actually left and immigrated and went to other countries, they found those folks. They all had the typical health problems. There's something about this town, and so they thought maybe it's the location. Maybe there's something about this town that just causes people, because of the topography or the geography or the weather, that they are able to be healthy. And yet they looked at the surrounding towns next to them that had similar topography, everyone had typical health problems. There's something about this town. There's something about this city. And this is a true story. And so what happened was, because of this, they decided, you know... We need to figure out this mystery. So they went and they stayed there. They lived there. They immersed themselves in this city. And then there they discovered the secret. When they walked around in this town, they noticed everybody was walking around and they just talked to each other on the streets all the time. You'd see people go over to each other's homes. Random people going, you want to just eat dinner? Sure, and they just come over and eat dinner. They don't even know each other that well, but they're just kind of always welcomed. It was very normal in this town for there to be three generations of people living under the same roof. Children, adults, grandparents, sometimes even great-grandparents. And this small town, filled with about just a few thousand people, had over 22 civic organizations. Gatherings where people would come together and meet in smaller units in this town. So what made the people thrive in Rosetto? They lived, according to the author, in a thick web of interconnected relationships. In other words, community. It was the community. The fact that they shared life together in this rich, deep, thick way that made them thrive. Now you have to remember, this is the 1950s. When the people came back saying, you know what makes everyone healthy? Community. They just share life together. This went against all common medical convention wisdom. Because most people thought at the time, the way you're healthy, it's your genes, or it's your exercise, or it's your diet. That's how you get healthy. But today, we actually know from research that people who live physically longer, are mentally healthier, and are more personally fulfilled, a large part of it is because of their community. Because of the way they interact with other people. And this feels, if you're trekking with me, this feels like sometimes a different world A different time. Because today, like no other time, has there been a radical decline in community life than the modern West. If you look at today, especially where we live, everything communal in the U.S. is declining. And it's happening so gradually that we don't even notice. Everybody lives, for the most part, in a gated community. Nobody can have dinner at your house randomly. It's gated. They're locked out. That just isn't there. It's just you and your family. Nobody talks to people on the streets randomly. In fact, they did a survey, the amount of people who talked to a random stranger for the past year, just one stranger in the street, 8% of the U.S. That's just not common anymore. And rarely do you see three generations in the same household. We have nursing homes for that now. And the few that do have three generations, we're all complaining about it. That's the common state that we're in today. There is a decline in every type of communal activity today. Robert Putnam, he wrote this famous book called Bowling Alone that just describes how sports leagues, bowling leagues, church attendance, it is all across the board a decline domestically in the U.S. Another author describes how there is also a decline physically in this thing called third places. Some of you might be familiar with that term. Third places is a place that's outside your home and outside your work that you hang out with. Cafes, libraries, malls, even offices, they are all shutting down. And so we live in a time where communal life is decreasing, both with the people, even physically around us. Everything works against us to have community. And this decline, it is causing a wreck with people. Back in in 2015, Time magazine they declared that loneliness is the new public health crisis. They recognized that the impact of loneliness, the impact it has on your mortality, it's the same equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's how much it affects you when you are alone. And in fact, we recognized back in 2015, that's when a lot of the talk about mental health started rising. And that was back in 2015. In 2018, there was a study that was observed where loneliness, it has doubled since the 1980s. We are, far, we are twice as lonely today than we were just back in the 80s. 46% of people say that they are constantly lonely today, and the highest is amongst Gen Z and millennials. And there are 24%, one out of every four people say, do you have a confidant? Someone who you could just lean upon to share your darkest stuff. And one of four said, no, I have nobody. I can't think of a single person who I could talk to. And back in 2022, this is just last year, or a few years ago, CDC, they they actually described how depression, anxiety, suicide, it is at an all-time high today. An all-time high. And this is especially there in the West, and again, especially amongst millennials and amongst Gen Z. And I know for us, this isn't just a stat that's out there. For us inside this room, we may not be as dramatic in our suffering as we might hear in those statistics. But I know I talked to enough of you here where all of us, we experience some version of this right now in our life. A lot of you work remotely. A lot of you go to school remotely. And it's awesome. You get to just stay at home, work from home. It's super convenient. And yet you have no idea how many people have come to me saying it's pretty lonely though. When we talked about having a church office, people come up to me going, can I work there? Can I work at your church office? Because you just need people sometimes. You need to see people. But when you're stuck at home, it does something to you. Young parents, people with newborns. You know what the hardest part about having a newborn is? The hardest part that I hear from a lot of moms, it's not the newborn. The hardest part is that you are stuck at home watching this newborn by yourself, listening to Baby Shark 20 times over and over again. It drives you crazy. It drives you crazy. People who are visiting our church, a lot of people looking at a church, they'll say, I'm just looking for good gospel preaching. But I know that's not true. Because there's a lot of churches around SoCal with great gospel preaching. And yet you're always looking, jumping the church to church. Why? You're looking for a community. You're looking for people to share life with. That's what all of us are looking for. For Christians. You know how many times people tell me how hard it is? Like, how are you doing? It's so hard for me to pray. Oh, I know I should read my Bible. I need to forgive that person. Oh, I should serve. Or I should follow Jesus. But the reason why it's so hard for us is because you were never meant to do that alone. You were never meant to follow Jesus by yourself. And this is why we are starting a new four-week sermon series, on the idea of community. How do we practice community? And this isn't a random thing that we're doing. Our church, we talk about this often, where we say that if you want to grow, this is a theory of spiritual growth. We go to the next slide. Our theory of growth is that you need teaching, you need practices, and you need a community, and through that, the Spirit uses those means to grow us in our walk of Christ. But oftentimes when we go to churches, it's only this. It's only teaching. This is what Jesus says, now go. Because we think information leads to transformation. And that's that's not the way human beings work. Or some churches, they just do this, practices. Hey, join this ministry. Hey, serve here. Serve the city. Do this. And all you do is practice, and that's it. But if you want a holistic view of what spiritual growth looks like, one thing our church constantly talks about is you need all three. You need there to be the teaching of God's word, but you also need to practice it, get it in your body, get it into your lifestyle, make it a habit what Jesus says. But you have to do it together. If you don't do it together, you are not going to grow. Because that's how the spirit works. And not only that, for our church, the way we practice community is we do it primarily through what we call community groups and bridge groups. And those all start next month. And the question, though, is when we enter into these groups, though, we have to ask ourselves, what are these groups supposed to look like? what does community supposed to look like in a church? And if we're honest with ourselves, we all bring our own ideas into community. And a lot of our ideas, it comes from our past, it comes from our desires, it comes from comparison. And so what I want to talk about today is, but what does community look like though, according to Jesus? What does Jesus have to say about how followers of Jesus practice community together? And the way we're going to look at that is by looking at the life of Jesus. How did Jesus practice community? Because Jesus, we believe as Christians, he is the most perfect, holistic human being that ever walked on this earth. He is fully God, and yet he is fully man. And he was not, while he was on earth, living in a mountain as a sage. Confucius says people come to him and he gives you advice. No, no, when you see Jesus in the gospels, he is always around community. He is always around people. And the hope is by learning how Jesus practiced community, we as followers of Jesus can learn how we should practice community. And so we're going to talk about this in two ways. Number one, how Jesus practiced community. And secondly, how followers of Jesus practice community. Very simple. How Jesus practiced community, how his followers of Should practice community. By the way, a lot of this inspiration came from my main man, Tim Keller. I love him. God bless his soul. I also came from John Mark Comer. He was really helpful as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote an amazing book called Life Together. Just really helpful resources. Dustin Willis wrote this book called Life in Community. All that to say, I just mixed it all up and only 10% is original. So just know a lot of this comes from people much smarter than me. So first, how Jesus practiced community. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Throughout Jesus' life, if you pay attention, you'll notice that, huh, he's rarely by himself. Sometimes he's by himself when he's praying on a mountainside. Sometimes he's by himself when he's praying in the garden. But besides those type of moments, he's usually always around people. It might be the crowds. It might be people who are really sick. It might be even Pharisees and Sadducees, those who want to hurt Jesus. But he's always around people. However, there's a group of people who Jesus spent the most time with. And we find it in Matthew chapter 10, the passage in your program. These 12 disciples are the people who we see are always around Jesus in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly. You always see this list that's given. And the reason why is because this was Jesus' community. This was the people who Jesus shared life with. But who are they? How did they meet? And what do they do together? Well, let's do the gospel of Matthew, doing a little survey. Let's trace how this community around Jesus was formed. And let's see how they actually practice community. We actually notice in Matthew, the first time this group comes together, it actually comes little by little where Jesus, he goes to two brothers, and he invites them, hey, come follow me. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, it says this. As he was walking alongside the sea of Galilee, this is Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting the nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their net and they followed him. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see this. We go, oh yeah, this verse looks familiar. Just know in Matthew, this is the first recorded action that Jesus takes in his ministry. Everything else Jesus did before this. He, went, he, got, uh, he was born. He was, pa- he was a passive character. Something was done to him. He went to the wilderness. The spirit led him to the wilderness. He was baptized. John the Baptist baptized him. But here, this is the first time Jesus actually does something. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus actually takes action. And the first action he takes, it's not to preach, it's not to write a Bible, but it's to invite people to come, to follow him. Because on Jesus' priority list of being able to usher in this kingdom movement, it's a community, it's a group of people that Jesus wants to form first. Secondly, notice that in Matthew chapter 10, the passage we have in our program, this community is not just two, these two brothers, but there are 12 individuals that Jesus has in this community. The reason why it's 12 is because that's the Jewish minimum number to have a synagogue or to have a community. If it was just Jesus and those two, that would be friends. But you have 12, it's a community, it's a group of people. And when you look at this list of 12 in Matthew chapter 10, it is all across the spectrum who these people are. For example, Peter and Andrew, the first people he invited over, what were they doing when he invited them? They were casting their nets in the sea. They were fishermen. If you keep reading Matthew 4, he invites two other people to come follow him, James and John. They're also fishermen, but they're in a boat with their dad, and they're always known as the sons of Zebedee. Why make that distinction? It's because Peter and Andrew, they were normal fishermen, and scholars argue that James and John, they were wealthy fishermen, successful fishermen. These were fishermen, back in Peter and Andrew, they were fishermen in the ghettos. Versus James and John, they were fishermen in Newport Beach, little different. And yet come, let's share life together. Notice in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3-4, to who's listed there? Matthew the tax collector. Tax collectors are not like accountants today. At this time, Roman was ruling over the area and they were working for the Roman government. Jewish people hated tax collectors. You're in cahoots with the corrupt government. And then you have Simon the Zealot. These are people who hated Rome who would stab people if they found out that you were in cahoots with them. It's like today, if this list was there, it would say, Matthew, the MAGA supporter, make America great again. And then Simon, the Black Lives Matter advocate, and they are here together sharing life. It's like, whoa, you would never see those two people in a room today. And back then, like, yeah, it's the same thing. And yet here they are. Jesus invited them both. Come follow me. And Jesus didn't just meet these people occasionally. He met them all the time. This was not a group when you see them together where they just gather for Bible studies once a week around Jesus' living room, go through the Torah, going, All right, now go, I'll see you next week. That wasn't how Jesus did it. This group, they ate together, they traveled together, they went sailing together, they fished together, they prayed together, they served together, and they didn't just talk weather or politics or even the Torah. They didn't even just talk about the Bible. But Jesus would encourage them, He would correct them. He talked about money, how they spent their money, how they viewed marriage, how they viewed children. They went deep in their conversation. And if you look at how Jesus spent time with this group of people, man, you'll notice how this community who Jesus selected, they're really annoying. They're really frustrating. They're always scared. You know Jesus, he does things to show that he has power. They're always freaked out. Like, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are we going to do in this situation? They're always struggling to grasp Jesus' teachings he would teach them something, they were like, duh, they just don't get it. They don't understand. They're always fighting with each other, who's the best, who's the greatest. And imagine if you're Jesus and you're with the people like that, like, what would you do? If you're Jesus, like, if, if we were Jesus, we'd probably just bounce, go to another church, find another community. These people are annoying. And yet, that's not what Jesus did. Because this was the whole point. Jesus was not looking for the most mature community to come and follow him. He was looking to form a community into maturity. That's what Jesus was doing. That's why when all the disciples were fighting with each other, who's the greatest? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 27, this is what Jesus says, "...whoever wants to be the first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Jesus has a purpose with this group. This group, this community, it's gonna be different than every other community that you've seen. Because this community, this is a community that's gonna be formed in love. That's gonna be formed into a community of love. A community that looks like Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the goal. And so given that's what's happening with Jesus' life in the community, a couple of observations that we can make. First observation is this. Jesus didn't just have a community but he made it a priority to form one in his life. Again, this is the first action that Jesus took in the Gospel of Matthew. My my homie and friend, Eugene Park, who a lot of you know, he wrote a great article where pretty much he was saying when people say, I'm looking for a community, they're presuming underneath that statement that you just find a community. Like, oh, I found one. That's not how community works. Community is not something that you just find or that you discover. It's something that you build. It's something that you take initiative with. It's something that takes action on your part. We see Jesus do that. And by the way, that was not normal back then. If you wanted to follow a rabbi, usually people have to find that rabbi and follow him. Jesus being a rabbi, he initiated and grabbed people around him. Something about community, this community that Jesus is building, it takes initiative on our part. A second observation is this. The way you learn to follow Jesus is to join his community because this is how you follow him. This is how you learn to follow him. It's not just teaching what Jesus says and go, oh, support me with this. No, no. This is the arena where you actually learn to follow Jesus. A lot of you here, I hear a popular sport that y'all are playing is pickleball. I don't know what that is. I heard it's some mixture between ping pong and tennis, something like that. Imagine if I said, hey, I heard everyone here plays pickleball. I want to play pickleball. Give me a paddle and I'm going to practice at home by myself and I'm going to get really good. Imagine you go, hey, you should come out and play with this. No, 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 I just don't do that. I don't play with people. I play pickleball by myself. If I said that, you'd be like, dude, you can't learn pickleball that way. The very nature of pickleball, it requires you play with other people. That's the only way you can play. That's the nature of the sport the same thing with following Jesus. The way to follow Jesus is with people. To follow Jesus without people, that goes against the nature of following Jesus. And that's why Jesus, the first thing he does, he comes follow me, you're joining with these other people. This is the group of people of how you learn to follow him. Third observation, Jesus could have easily have invited the most mature religious leaders, there were plenty of them, Pharisees, Sadducees, to follow him. The most compatible personalities come follow him, but he doesn't. Instead, what matters most for Jesus was not the level of maturity that each individual had, nor the measure of compatibility that they had as a group. What mattered most was their willingness to follow Jesus. That's what mattered to him. And that's why those who are part of Jesus' community, you will find people who are super mature and serious about their faith, and you'll find people who they just like the lunch, they just like the food, You'll find people in Jesus' community, they're super rich and they're doing well off, and people who are not so rich and not doing as well off. You'll find a bunch of people who are ESTJs, you'll find a bunch of people who are INFPs. It's just a mixture, this weird bunch grouped together. That's what the community of Jesus looks like. And last observation, Jesus' community, it wasn't just about keeping each other company. It wasn't just, let's hang out. Now Keller says it like this, he says, you know what a community is that grows without a purpose? That's like cancer. That's what cancer does. It just grows. There's no reason why it's growing and you die. That's a community. If you're just growing for the sake of growing, there's no purpose of your community. But Jesus' community, there is a purpose. It's to become like him, to become like Jesus. This is the school of love of how we grow to be like Jesus, learning from each other, learning with each other, sharing life together. This is the way Jesus designed growth. This is the purpose of Jesus' community. And so what happens in the Gospels is these 12 people in Matthew chapter 10, those 12 individuals, they spent three years together and three years with Jesus, and they were never the same. They were transformed by this community. For example, John, who's one of the disciples listed there, he was known as the son of thunder. Pretty intense. He was an intense guy. When people were against Jesus, he's like, should we pray to God and bring thunder upon that city? That was his reputation. But you know who John became? He became the author of love. First John is all about love each other, love each other. What happened to this dude? He changed. Peter, he went from this brash person going, I will follow Jesus. And he would lead like a men's ministry going, yeah, let's do it. So all of a sudden he becomes this humble shepherd, writing in first and second Peter how we got to shepherd the flock. Judas, he was this religious faker going, yeah, I'm good. I follow God. I love the Torah. And through community, it was exposed, Now this person loves money. And it's plain and simple that this person loves money. And all 12 of this people, all 12 of this group, they went from people who were scared, hiding after Jesus died, to all of a sudden boldly proclaiming the gospel, being martyred for their faith. Why? It wasn't just because they read the Bible. It wasn't just because they were hanging out. They were practicing community together with Jesus. Now, when you consider... This is community in Jesus' eyes. This is what it looked like for Jesus to practice community. It actually goes against a lot of ways of how we view community. Some of us here, without knowing it, the way you imagine community, you imagine it like this. Community for you is connectivity. As long as you're doing something together, that's a community. As long as we're like hanging out, we're playing, we're doing a sport, oh yeah, that's my community that's there. You meet once a week, maybe twice a week. Maybe sometimes afterwards you grab coffee, grab a beer, whatever it is. You just hang out two, three hours a week. That's my community. And just know if that's you and that's your community, you have far too shallow of a view of what a community is supposed to be. Because that community, it doesn't shape you whatsoever. Imagine you're on a dating app. I know a lot of you are on that dating app. Love you met each other through the dating app. Imagine you're on a dating app, and again, I'm, I'm such a boomer, I have no idea how dating apps work, but I hear the way it works is when you like somebody, you swipe, you start texting, and you might even call each other, and you might FaceTime each other, and it all leads to this dramatic moment of should we meet for coffee? Now imagine that happens to you, where you meet someone for coffee, this person you're chatting with, and when you meet with them, it's going well, but all of a sudden the other person across the coffee table goes, you know, this was great. I love grabbing coffee with you. Can we keep this online, though? Like, can we just go back to, like, you know, chatting through text and so forth? Because I, I prefer things at a distance. That will likely be the end of that relationship, right? It will likely be over for you. Because we know that to make an authentic relationship deeper into what, it's, what it really is, it requires knowing each other. It requires being able to share life together in this way. You can't do it from this distant sense where you're just on the screen, far away, talking every once in a while. In a similar way, this is what community is. This is what community is supposed to be. Thick, authentic relationships that go deep and you're only going to change and get transformed when your community looks like this. Connectivity does not do it. For others of us, it's a little bit different. It's not connectivity, but for you, community is chemistry. Community is chemistry. This instant connection with someone. Like, oh, you too? Oh, you like that too? Me too. And all of a sudden, there's this chemistry that happens between the two of you. You know how that happened to me before with like, there's like a major bromance. Uh, I remember back when I met my friend and a lot of you guys know him. His name is Jason Park. I remember I met Jason Park back in college and dude, there's like instant like bromance with that guy. Jason is like the funniest guy because he's so mean. Like the way he makes fun of people, it just like jacks people. And to me, I just like love it. I love watching him make fun of people. I love having crack jokes because he makes the jokes. I laugh. It's like the perfect combo. We just got along really well with each other. Jason, he loves movies, and I love movies. Not just any movie. Like, I remember we bonded over to Karate Kid. I once brought the Karate Kid home because this is back when we watched DVDs. He's like, you like Karate Kid? I'm like, I love the Karate Kid. And we just watched Karate Kid. Like, I kid you not, once a month, we just watched, We memorized the whole movie. There's this bond of like, these 80s movies that we had together. Jason's a pastor, I'm a pastor, and our kids are the exact same age. He has two kids that are are, uh, eight and six, and I I have two kids that are eight and six too. But what's interesting about Jason is that I have chemistry with that guy. He's like my dearest friend. He's not a member of my community. You know how often I see Jason? Maybe at most twice a quarter. Like at most, because he lives in LA. He lives so far. Like I feel as far just driving where he lives in LA. He doesn't see my home life. Doesn't see my marriage life. He just hears reports of it from me. We don't really share lives together, even though he's my dearest friend. In contrast, I have people in my community group. Guys like, there's a person named Gene who's in my community group. There's a sister named Eunice in my community group. There's a sister named Emily in my community group. And let me tell you, I, like, they're awesome people. But just enough, I met them at a church without knowing any context. They would not be the people I naturally go to. You know why? Dude, Gene's 23 years old, he's Gen Z. We have nothing in common in that way. He's the nicest guy. Like, too nice. Like, so nice I can't relate with him sometimes. It's like, dude, how are you that nice? And the movies I love, they never even heard of it. They don't know what, the, like, The Matrix is. I'm like, wow, you don't know the Ma-? Like, it's crazy. I feel so old when around these folks. And yet, and yet, I saw him about once or twice a week. Not, not twice a quarter. Once or twice a week. We see each other in community groups. We see each other on Sundays. He saw my home life. He saw how I take care of my kids. He saw how my marriage really was going, just those little glimpses of just seeing me and my wife interact with each other. We shared life together. We shared life. And here's the main point you could have chemistry with a lot of people that you practice very little community with. That was, that's Jason. I have a lot of chemistry with Jason. I don't really practice community with them. Because if if twice a quarter is community to you, way too shallow. In contrast, you can practice community with people who you have very little natural chemistry with. Because it's sharing life. The dream is to find both, right? The dream is chemistry and community. But I just want to make the point that those two are not always synonymous. And they rarely overlap, in fact, this is why I get really nervous for people when they tell me they want to leave their church because they struggle finding community. And that's usually the number one reason why people want to leave a church, because community. And whenever people say that, in my mind, I don't say this out loud, out loud but in my mind, I think, good luck, I'll name you churches to go find community. Because I know what you're really looking for. You're not looking for a community, you're looking for chemistry. You're looking for a friend group. That you find you just naturally click. You want five Jasons around you at church, and you think it's out there somewhere. But just know it's really hard. It's really rare. Even as you get, especially as you get older, it's rare to find someone that way. So this is our idea of community. It's either connectivity, way too shallow. It's chemistry, it's way too unrealistic. So what is community supposed to look like then, according to Jesus? Koinonia is the Greek term that's often used. Koinonia in the Greek, this is the New Testament's favorite word for community. It translates as community, translates as fellowship, it translates as partnership, it translates as people who have something in common. I like the Webster Dictionary version of what this definition means. This is what community is according to Webster Dictionary. It says, community is a group of people with a common interest living together within a larger society. I like that definition because you break that down in two ways. You are sharing life together and you have something in common. That's a community. Followers of Jesus, this is what it looks like for them. You share life together and you have a common interest. And that common interest is not your personality type, it's not your politics, it's not your race. The common interest for followers of Jesus is following Jesus. How do we follow Jesus? Let's follow Jesus together. And so, before we talk about what this practice looks like for us, let me just pause here and ask you: What's your idea of community? Do you know what your idea of community is? Some of you, your idea of community—it really is connectivity, and it shows through your actions. You show up on a Sunday, you listen to praise, listen to pray, you pray, you listen to the sermons, and it's awesome. By the way, that's that's how every community starts. But you're not changing. You're not really growing. Because your practice of community, it's far too shallow. It's an addendum to you, like an extra bonus. It's not a core part of your life. And that's the only way community can be a community to you. It's like saying marriage is an addendum to you. Marriage doesn't work that way. Community, the same thing. It cannot just be addendum. It has to be a core part of who you are. For some of you, your view of community, if you're really honest, it's chemistry. You have deep relationships with people here, who you have chemistry with. You have community here with the people who you get along with. You will join a community group, but you want to know who's in that group. If it's not two homies, I can't join it. You will serve a ministry, but who else is serving there? If it's not not two homies, I'm not going to do it. Because for a lot of us here, if we're really honest, community for us, it's chemistry and that's it. And just that's a very isolated thing. And in fact, I get worried for those folks too, because uh, what happens when those people leave, and they do leave, People get married off. People, you know, California prices are rising. I know one person, he had this community where my five best friends were at church. When they got into their 40s, all five of them left. Texas, Utah, they're all gone. And that person was just lost because he only learned to practice community with chemistry. And some of you here, you're a little bit different where, man, you're doing everything. Like you're part of community groups, you have friends and so forth. And yet you still feel kind of this weird loneliness in a space like this. And so what should we do? And that leads to the second part, how followers of Jesus practice community. So this pattern we see, Jesus and his disciples, they're just sharing life, following Jesus together. And so it makes sense when you read the rest of the New Testament, how it describes, hey, church, this is what you should do. Let's look at the one passage in Acts chapter six, where it describes how the... Church does community. This says in Acts chapter 2 every day this is the community of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the meeting together in the temple, broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Awesome. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul tells us to the church in Rome, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. That's not with all the world, that's you, church, with each other. Do this together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, a very familiar passage. The writer writes, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. One author looks at all these verses and she says it like this about the church of God. She says, quote, Megan Hill says, members of the church family, they have a common life together. We have mutual responsibilities towards one another. And as we care for one another, we experience and display the sibling love of Christ himself. In the local church, we are brothers and sisters. Welcome to the family. And when you read that, you go, awesome. That sounds awesome. Why do I not experience anything near that in my community life? Why do some of us here, you come and you gather on Sundays and you worship with the church, but you drive home feeling this weird loneliness as you drive home? Why do some of you, you go to community groups midweek and you share life with people, and yet you don't really feel that heard or that seen or that known by other people? Why do some of you, you've been part of this church for a long time. You're like really a veteran at this church, but you sometimes feel like a newcomer here. You sometimes don't know if people really know you. There's a book by this Christian psychologist named The Different Drum. His name is M. Scott Peck. And he says, when you look at a community, and this is not just a Christian community, this is just any community that's there, it's important to know that communities go through stages. There are four stages that every community goes through. And he has labels for these four stages that are very helpful. Here's stage one of what communities go through. First stage. He calls it the pseudo-community. The pseudo-community is where everybody starts. Where you show up to a group of people, but you hold back. We're all wearing masks. It's your Instagram version of yourself when you go to these groups. You avoid conflict. This is when you first join a church, when you first join a community group. Everyone seems great because we all present the best part of ourselves. Again, every community group, not just community group, but every community begins at this stage. Most communities stay at this stage and nobody grows in this stage. And yet this is probably 90% of the communities that are out there. The pseudo-community. You know what happens in stage two? Do you want to know how to break through? The second stage, chaos. He calls it chaos. This is when your mask slips. You're not purposely letting it slip. It's just kind of slipping off because you are who you are. This is when we notice things about each other. This is when we see like annoyances about each other. You notice this person's always late. They come always 10 minutes late. And that's just who they are. People notice, oh, that person, they're really negative. In fact, they're mopey. They haven't shared a positive thing this whole year. And people notice things about you. That you're a mopey. You come late sometimes. And then if you're really honest, you're having conflict, you avoid each other. Every community, according to Scott Peck, you have to go through the stage. You have to. But rarely does any group go through the stage. You know why? It's too, it's too uncomfortable. So what happens this moment? You either bounce, you leave because the conflict's too great, or you revert back to pseudo-community. You just become polite again, put on your mask, you become really nice. Third stage, though, if you get through that, once the chaos happens, there's something called emptiness. And emptiness is you just learn to accept this is the community. Oh, yeah, people, this guy guy's always late. That person's just mopey. I'm mopey. And <laughs> this is kind of the way it is. And this is where it's an interesting place. You can either at this point decide to become complacent because you're just like, ah, oh, this is the way it is. Or now you could really grow. It's your choice. And a lot of, this is where the veterans struggle. Any veterans at church who are there for like a long time, oftentimes they're at this stage, where they, they never get angry at community because they don't care. They don't care anymore. They either accepted it for what it is or just kind of complacent and comfortable or they take this next stage where they start to grow. And that's where at least the next point, true community. You are sharing your real self to each other You feel just a deep sense of belonging with each other. but This takes going all in. This takes you not holding back. This takes you going through the uncomfort, the the, 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 the drama, the hardships. This takes going deeper. Or you just regress back to pseudo-community. Why is this the case? Why do most, I'm pretty sure 90% of us here, we all are familiar with this one. And we're all only here. That's all we know. Why is that? If we're honest with ourselves, it's like, it's, a, it's like a bad marriage. We think it's the other person. Man, she, you just don't understand my wife. She's crazy. We just say stuff like that, right? And may be true, but often it's you too. It's often you too. Some of us here, you never experience true community because if you're honest with yourself, you don't like committing to things. This tends to be, especially to younger people, like just commitment is a scary thing. When you commit to something, it goes against everything your body tells you to do, which is autonomy. You do you. Your community group meets every Tuesday night. What if I'm tired that day? What if I have work to do that's really hard? What if something better comes along? Like I have friends who want to hang out. That's how, and it's really hard for some of us to make that commitment. But here's the problem. The only relationships that work, that get deep, that can really transform you, it's never the ones that are just kind of just play it by ear. It's always the ones that have deep commitment attached to it. Community without commitment, that's a pseudo-community. But community with commitment, that's the beginning of a true one. Some of us, though, it's not the idea of commitment that's tough. But, you know, for some of us here, you know why community is really hard? Why we don't go all in? Your view of community its too idealistic. You have such an idealistic view of community. The number one reason why young married couples get a divorce, you know what it is, what marriage therapists say? Each member of that married couple, the couple, they have wild expectations of each other that no human being could ever fulfill. I saw on TikTok, it was really funny, this husband was complaining to his wife, saying, why do you always look grumpy when you're cleaning the house? Can't you be happier? And she's like, oh, you want me to smile? And she's just like cleaning, smiling, like the toilets and cleaning the table. And it's like, it's ridiculous when you actually think about it. And yet that's how we approach our marriages. We have these wild expectations of the other person to make our life convenient. And we do that without knowing about community. We have these wild expectations that unless someone calls you out, and you realize it's, it's really wild. I want to be at a church where everybody loves God. But th- I want them to be fun, like really social too. And I need people my age so I can have like a friend group. But I also want older people so they can mentor me. And they must initiate with me. They have to invite me. Otherwise, I feel left out. And again, it's like, dude, all those things are good things. That's not going to happen. And yet we get such a really hard time accepting any community because we want that perfect ideal. And as Bonhoeffer says, it's your ideal of community, your idea of it, it will crush the reality of community. Just like your idea of marriage often crushes the reality of your marriage. And for some of us, that's the big problem. But here's the main thing I think a lot of us struggle with the most. You know, the main reason I would argue why we struggle with community, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're all scared. We are all scared. And this is not uh, an introvert-extrovert thing. I know introverts, we think, oh, it's only the introverts who are scared of community. Dude, there are some introverts, they're the most relationally, widely connected, deepest, most communal people you'll ever meet. And there are some extroverts who are the most lonely, superficial, noncommittal, people who have plenty of friends, no community. For a lot of us here, when you share life with people and you share life for a long period of time, you know what happens to you? You get exposed. The real you will eventually come out. And we get freaked out because what will people think? You know, remember when you lived with roommates back in college and post-grad? Remember how you thought you loved that person until you roomed with them? Now you hate them. Why? Because the real person came out. You see them now. You know the best place to find out who the real person is or who they are? Go on a mission trip on a month with the person. You'll be surprised. There's some people you're like, that person, man, they seem like a great catch. And people on the mission team like, mm, feel bad for that person, spouse, because they know the real person. For other people, you would think nobody would give that person the light of the day. All of a sudden, they're like the greatest catch on the mission field. Why? The real you is being exposed. You can't hide the real you when you share life with people. You know what the realest part of ourselves are? It's your home life usually. People who you live with. If you spent a whole day with me, let's just say you shadowed me the whole day and you saw the way I interacted with my, not, not with you guys, not with my friends, but with my wife and my children, you'll be slightly sometimes encouraged and I'm pretty sure most of you would be pretty hindered. You might get hindered. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you, you talk like that Sometimes. You show that type of attitude to your spouse sometimes. You treat your kids like that way sometimes. It could be very hindering. And I know all of us parents, were like that too. We will freak out if people saw our home life. Why? Not because that's the worst part of yourself. It's the realest part of yourself. That's the real you. And it's scary for people to see that. Because what if they, what would they think of me? And the ironic, ironic part about that is the part you hide from most people, that is actually the part that you need most transformation in. That's the part where you need most people speaking to your life in. That's how you need to follow Jesus in those areas of your life. Henry Cloud and John Townsend are two authors. They say like this, quote, it is only as we relate intimately to others in the body of Christ that we find out how unloving we can actually be. They tell us, we apologize, we receive forgiveness, and then try to do better. And it's through this process of failure, forgiveness, and growth that we can find out the areas and ways we need to change. And God is then able to change us. And that's why a lot of us, we are not changing. Can we just don't let people see those parts? Do you guys know what the most effective group is at changing people? Sadly, it's not the church. You know where people, if you go there, and you go there for like a year, you will walk away changed? I heard this from so many different people, and it's just so fascinating. The place where people change the most is alcoholic anonymous groups. When you go to an alcoholic anonymous group, people walk away changed. Not because of the teaching. They say the same thing over and over again. Don't drink, man. Don't do it. This is the same thing. But what makes the difference is, how was your past week and they share brutally, honestly. One pastor, he said, I wonder, he said a quote that I heard in the sermon that really stuck out to me. He said, you know, it was really fascinating. When people at church, they go down to receive the Lord's Supper. And you know, when we, when we practice the Lord's Supper together, we often say sorry to God in our minds. Could we say, hey, let's confess our sins to the Lord. And yet, even though we do that monthly, confessing our sins before God, way less transformation, years of that, than just a few meetings at a double A meeting. Alcoholic Anonymous Meetings has way more power for some reason than when we come together as a church, taking the Lord's Supper, confessing our sins to God. Why? Because there's something about that Alcoholics Anonymous group meeting that resembles far closer to what the church was supposed to be than what it is today. Today, when we experience church, and I've said this before, it is a church around the stage where we receive, we come as individuals, we're autonomous. And while all that's important, the early church, they also practice church around a table where we share and we are part of a community that's there. And that's when power happens. And so, quick question do you experience community like this? Is this what you experience here? If you want to experience community like this, there are two things you just really need. And I'll close with this you need to have a spirit of vulnerability, and there needs to be accountability in your life. When we are vulnerable to each other, which does not happen on a Sunday, You need to share life with people. You're putting your mask down. You're willing to share the real you. One author says it like this, there is no vulnerability without risk, but there's no community without vulnerability. Everyone's natural default is just to put on our mask. It's a pseudo community that happens. But But we have the ability, we have the opportunity when we gather together as a church to practice real community. And that happens when we let our guard down. There was once a, uh, I remember one community group meeting we had in, in my community group. And we, it was a typical community group. How was your week? I'm fine. Oh, work is hard. Oh, pray for me. You know, this, this is hard. But I remember like the third person who shared, like, man, that person, they're like, hey, can I tell you guys something? And dude, just share things. I was like, oh, and I gasped at I was like, oh my gosh, do you know, this is a community group? We don't share stuff like that. Like, that was almost the feeling because it was so out of the ordinary. And what was really powerful about the moment was like, that person was sharing. is just stuff that you just do not share at a normal setting. That just opened everybody to be like, you know, let me take back what I shared. I'm actually going through this too. And this next person is like, dude, I'm going through this. And it just became this like communal sharing that happened. And when you see that, everyone is like lowering their mask because one person is lowering their mask. And that's what it takes for a community to happen. When people are brave enough, have courageous, or courageous enough to go, you know, let me put my mask down for a little bit. And let me share. And that could be scary. And that's what we need a second thing with community. Not just vulnerability, but accountability. Where you're able to have people speak into your life. Share and talk to you about your life. I heard this one community group where a person shared like something really deep. Like this is what's going on. It was like really deep stuff. And the rest of the community group are like, well, thank you for sharing. Next person. And they went, oh, no one's going to share in that setting. That game over, that, that community was done. All the masks were back up. I, I wish well, what would have happened in that moment is someone just acknowledged, like, dude, that must have been really hard for you to share with us. Or DM them after going, dude, that, when you shared that, just know that really moved me. Or like, hey, you shared something deep, let's grab coffee. I wish we'd see those moments as these spirit-led moments where we can actually begin true community. Because we are all practicing pseudo-community that takes this intentionality for us to practice true community together. Personally, for me, community does not come natural. I am a hardcore introvert. My job is super social. So it's like, I have every reason not to do community. And I experienced all the cycles. I was somebody who was like, you know what? I'm just gonna do my own thing. I just don't want to meet with people. I had this idealistic view of community. That's totally gone now. I have no idealism with community whatsoever. And I had this really hard sense of, should I really share? But now I, I cannot imagine life without community. Because for me, scripture, reading my Bible, it strengthens me. Prayers, it calms me down. Sundays, it encourages me. But you know, community changes me. I remember conversations that just changed my life. I remember, I just know the way I talk, the way I think, it's through the community feedback. It just changes me. And this is what we need too. This is what Jesus offers to us as well. And so as I lead us in a time of prayer, as I invite the praise team, can I just invite us to take a moment here to, to pause and to respond. For some of us here who are visiting this church, if so I can invite us to really pause and ask ourselves, have we been experiencing church around the stage only? And even though it's great, it's awesome, but maybe we're not growing because we need church around the table. And so I really hope that we could consider, perhaps there are steps that we can take where maybe it just takes a little more time and that's totally okay. Maybe it takes a little bit of initiation on our part just as Jesus initiated with other folks. Or maybe it takes, you know, I'll, I'll sign up for bridge groups, sign up for community groups, just to see what it's like. That might be an invitation for some of us here, but for here at the church, members of the church, as we begin community in this church in this season, can you put your mask down? Are you able to share openly and vulnerably with your group? And if not, if that sounds freaky, why not? Why is that so scary to you? Maybe if we're honest, it's because the gospel has not hit that part of us deep enough yet. We're not real with other people perhaps because we're actually not real with God. And so maybe we take a moment just to pause and be real with the Lord, just this one moment, coming before him, admitting admitting the ways that we fall short. So let's take a moment to respond and then I'll close us in a word of prayer. Let's pray.